You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. So how do you walk with bold hope in God's unlimited promises when you're living in the land of limited resources? Because that's where Abraham and Lot were living. I'm going to call him Abraham. Genesis doesn't start calling him that for a little while, but we're more familiar with that name. Abraham and Lot were small cattle nomads. And here's what this means. They weren't like Bedouins who run around on camels and and have tents and start wars. They're more peaceful than that. They have a lot of small cattle, and they move around actually in pretty highly cultivated areas. And the arrangement is that oftentimes after fields are cultivated, the ones with the small cattle can let their cattle graze there. It's just how the economy worked in this agricultural area in the ancient Near East. Excuse me. So... um. But the reality is that there can be a scarcity of resources for these kind of nomads. Because small cattle nomads cannot grow beyond a certain size and still remain viable. The land can't support them. So what happens in that situation is the support subordinate in a family group or, or a, a nomad group will, um, will separate out, like Abraham said to Lot, separate out from me. Um, and they will go find another area where they can grow. And both Abraham and Lot are very wealthy at this point. Abraham's much more wealthy. We know that because the Bible said he has silver and gold, as well as tents and herds. Uh, The tents would be where his herdsmen live. These are the people he's responsible for. Um, And Lot also has an an increasing prosperity as he travels with Abraham, and, and they experience this blessing from the Lord in this risk that they have taken. But now they're living in a land of limited resources. Now, this is a passage just clearly about wealth. So let's talk for just a minute about what wealth and how wealth is talked about in the Bible. Because we're all in different places here. Uh, Many many of us are just kind of starting out. Wealth is something that other people have. And we're just trying to pay rent if we can get there. Um, There's others of us in this room who have some money set aside and we're worried we're going to outlive it. Um, there's people in this room who are very wealthy, who have no care uh, for, for that, except that wealth brings its own anxieties. But we're kind of all on a spectrum. So even though this story is about two men who are wealthy and growing in wealth, it's written and given to us as an example of what to do with, uh, with wealth, where wealth fits into the kingdom and the purposes of God. Because what happens in this story... The Bible talks about the wealthy as people who um, are secure. The wealthy, as the scripture describes them all the way through, are those who don't have to worry about the future security and stability of the land for their family. Their family's taken care of. Their, their tribe is taken care of. And each of these are trying to, to take care of that. Now, the storyteller could have told us a really simple story. They're both rich. There's not enough room for both of them. They made an agreement. Lot went east. Abram went to Canaan. But the storyteller didn't tell it that way. We get a lot more information. And the information, what happens, is there's a contrast that sets up between Lot and Lot's choices and Abraham and Abraham's choices. And actually, last week when George preached, he gave us a great framework to look at this contrast. Because I don't know if you remember, George preached about the prospect versus the promise. Uh, he compared the, the, the prospect of, of stability and, and, and actually ended up being stuckness of Abram's 
uh, family, and then Abraham following the promise of God. So what happens in this story is we have a contrast between Lot, who follows the prospect of wealth for security, for stability, for growth, and Abraham, who lives into and boldly acts into the promise of God, the immeasurable promise of God for stability and growth and land. And the story contrasts those. We can tell there's, um, that Lot is not the one that to follow because of the language that the Bible uses for when Lot looked out and lifted his eyes. Um, do you remember the language in Genesis when uh, Eve looks at the tree of the garden of good and evil and sees the fruit? Do you remember that at all? It says something to the effect that you know she saw that this fruit on the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and was to be desired. And do you remember the language it just used here? That's language for coveting in the Bible. That's the way the storytellers describe coveting. And the language for Lot. He looked over this well-watered land. It looked like the garden of the Lord. It was, and he desired it. He wanted it. And so that's where he moved and pitched his tent, was where there was the best prospect of wealth. Now this confused me when I was um, studying this because I thought, our best guess is that Sodom and Gomorrah are on the, were in the cities of the plain. They were two of four or five cities in the plain. And they were at the south and east side of what is now the Dead Sea. And if you look at now the south and east side of the Dead Sea, it's deserts. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's desolate. So I thought, what on earth did Lot see? And fortunately, we're a pretty big church, and one of our members here, uh, Sam Walker, is an archaeologist, biblical archaeologist, and I sent him an email, you know, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Which is a really interesting tagline, if you ever want to send someone an email, you know, just in the subject line, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? But um, he sent back such interesting information, and here's what he said. He said, you know, everything today is desert in this area. But in Abraham's age, these hills, and I'm reading his email now, were actually forested. And this allowed for a far more verdant, hospitable environment. And then he went on to explain that at the northern Dead Sea, I mean, there's wild animals and reeds, and it's so wild, you can't even live up there. And in the south and the east, because there's two different riverbeds that come through on, on the east side of the Jordan, these were amazingly fertile lands. Do you remember in a famine, the reason that Ruth went at Ruth's family, Ruth even got married to an Israelite, is there was a famine in Canaan, Israel, and they went around to where Moab was, these very fertile lands. Moab, the Moabites were descendants of Lot. So they had really fertile land. This was the breadbasket of the Middle East, all the way up through the Roman and Byzantine areas, eras. So it, it, was, it, was very, it was very rich soil, and it was very fertile, and that's where Lot decided to go. In fact, the, the knowledge that these cities on the plain were known for their wealth is held throughout Scripture. In Ezekiel, when Ezekiel describes Sodom, which is the city where Lot went and pitched his tent, this is the way um, Ezekiel describes Sodom. He says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. This is Ezekiel 16, 49. This was the guilt. She and her daughters, those are the other cities, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. When you read Scripture, Scripture doesn't have a problem with wealth. Scripture has a problem with wealth that's lived out with pride and excess of food and prosperous ease and and neglecting the aid of the poor and the needy. 
It seems that the storyteller reminds us about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in this, because he doesn't have to tell us. We hear about it in 19. But for some reason, just kind of awkwardly, the storyteller says in here, by the way, that was before these cities were destroyed and these were places full of sin. These get inserted because this is a wealth story and it's a reminder that Lot, looking at the prospect of wealth, choosing to pitch his tent there for the sake of security, merely chose destruction. And then we have Abraham over here. Now, Abraham in the story also looks out on the land. Did you catch that? Abraham in the story, the Lord comes to Abraham after Lot separates for the prospect of wealth, and he gives Abraham two commands. The first one is look up, look out. Same thing Lot did, look out on the land. And the second one is rise up and walk. Two commands, remember these. Because this is a contrast. When, when Lot raises his eyes, he's looking for the prospect of wealth and he's going there for security. When Abraham raises his eyes, he's looking into the unlimited promises of God. So Abraham raises his eyes, looks over this land of limited resources, but sees it through the vision of this unlimited promise that the Lord is making to him. Your descendants, I mean, if you can count the dust of the sand on the earth... That's how numerous your descendants will be, the Lord promises to Abraham. And then he gives the second command, to walk the boundaries. I learned also this week that this was an ancient um, legal language for the transfer of land. That if you deeded land to somebody um, and, and promised it to them, it, legally it was theirs. They may not have taken possession of it yet, but it was theirs. And the way that they, that they marked this off was the person walked the length and the breadth of the land. You remember you heard this in the story. This is the Lord saying to Abraham, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to this. This is yours. Walk the length and the breadth of this land. And then as you pitch your tent in this land of immeasurable promise, live out that promise with bold hope. Because that promise is certain. So this is what I like about this story. This is a story that's really realistic about limited resources and territorial fights. And the fact that territorial fights happen over limited resources. Um, both men face these realities of limited resources. Uh, their vision was different and their actions were different. And it made me wonder, you know, what about, what about me? What about you? What about us? How do we actually follow Abraham's example of looking out with Hope in God's promises, bold action in the hope of God's promises for our security. Because uh, we all, uh, you know, we're raised doing territorial battles. How many of you use duct tape down the middle of your room to keep your sister out of your side of the room? No one, oh good, thank you. Some people are nodding. It was tricky in my room too because the sink was on her side. So I had to jump from my bed to Sherry's side of the room to get there. But we do, how many of you street parking? How, I, I have to do street parking in front of my house. How many of you do street parking? Talk about territorial battles. I mean, that's, that's it right there. We're all involved in territory because we do live in the land of a limited resource. There are only four corner offices. Uh, the more you progress along these prospects that we're invited into, the less room there is for everybody. Um, there aren't enough spots in the majors. Uh, we're we're the roommate uh, territorial problems, job competition, divorce settlements, property disputes, estate battles, office space, neighbors, school enrollment, um, spots on the varsity team, 
And you remember the definition of wealth. The ones who had the wealth could secure their spot, their security, their place. It hasn't really changed in the way that it works if we're following the prospect of wealth. And it hasn't changed in a place of the land of limited resource. We live with this. And we have these um, territorial battles because there really is something to be lost. And so I want to look at what Abraham did. Uh, this week, this is what I've been so concerned with. How do I learn from him? I want something practical. I want a practical way to live out this bold hope and not just engage in these competitive territorial battles. And there's two things that it seems to me Abraham did in his interaction with Lot that we're all called to do to ensure that we're living out the promises of God's provision and not just trying to live into the prospect of wealth that will keep us safe. And the first thing he did is he chose peace rather than competition with Lot. Did you catch this? I mean, is it, it, the way he went about, you heard me say earlier that the subordinate separates and move away, but, but the way that Abraham did it, I mean, that's not how this works. How many of you have seen this Geico ad? This is like my favorite Geico ad. Um, and it's like two older ladies, three of them actually, three older ladies in a living room, and one of them on the wall has put up a bunch of pictures and quotes. She's taped it up. Have you seen this? Raise your hand if you've seen this ad. This is, look it up. It's so fun. She's taped these things up, and she's taped up cat pictures, and she's showing her friends. And one friend kind of objects that that's, she doesn't really understand the concept of this wall thing. And, and so when she gets the objection, the woman who's hosting and looks at her and she says, I unfriend you. And, and the friend goes, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And this is what's been going through my head the whole time on this story. Because I imagine Sarah in the tent when Abraham comes back. And Sarah, everyone knows about these quarrels. And Abraham comes back, and there's not a quarrel anymore. And she wants to know what's happened. And Abraham says, well, I gave Lot first choice. He took the plains of Jordan. We're here in Canaan. And I just imagine Sarah saying, are you kidding me? That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You're the elder. You're the patriarch. You're the wealthier party. You have first choice. Why did he do it? Well, the story tells us that Abraham looked at Lot and said, I don't want strife between us. Abraham went in with the objective and the end game of peace. Abraham went in with the end game of shalom. Abraham went in with the end game of reconciliation. That's the whole end game in scripture from beginning to end. See, in the biblical story, security, true security, and a future is built on shalom. It's built on peace. It's built on reconciliation. And throughout Scripture, the bedrock of future security in the land of limited resources is peace with God and neighbor. Wealth cannot secure that future. It's peace. It's shalom that secures the future that God has promised. So Abraham's choice basically looks at Lot and says, listen, what is best for you is best for both of us. So we're going for the best for you. At a really, um, what for me was a very interesting conversation this summer with some, uh, with some uh, friends that we were out on vacation with. And these friends live down in California, Northern California, very uh, wealthy community. Um, and 
In the conversation, the wife, now that she is uh, retired, is very involved with homelessness issues. How many of you saw the weekly and the, and, the, and the article in the weekly about homelessness and Utah and what Utah is doing about homelessness? It's pretty interesting. I would, I would Google it if I were you or Bing it or whatever you do. Um, but it's an interesting article. Basically, she said the same thing that they're finding in Utah, that she's very involved with homelessness and the solution to homelessness is you put people in homes, to chronic homelessness. You shelter people. The, sh the chronically homeless. Her husband jumped in, he's a finance guy, and he said, yeah, we've actually found that if you add up how much a community spends in a year on a person who's chronically homeless and a person who we pay for their shelter with no, um, uh, with no preconditions, they don't have to get sober, they don't have to quit using drugs, they don't have to get themselves a job, we're just gonna shelter them. We pay far more money for the chronic homeless person than someone we put in shelter, which was news to me, I didn't know this. But then he said this, and this is what caught my eye and relates to this sermon. He said, but a lot of people in the community, even when they know this, they resist it because it's not fair. They've got kids who are young adults who can't get housing. They're working. They're working hard. There's nothing they can afford in rent. And why is this addict who's living on the street getting free housing and their kid is in? And we really talked about that for a long time. And then we think about Abraham. See, the idea that you actually, it's a balance sheet issue is a really good argument in the land of limited resources. But it is a land of limited resources argument. That isn't the argument we make in the church about why we shelter those who have no shelter, why we aid the poor, why we step in. The argument we make in the church is because it's about shalom. It's an Abraham kind of decision. When I was a kid and I heard this story, I remember the first thing that blurted out of my mouth was, that is not fair. Why would Abraham do that? Lot didn't deserve it. Lot goes on in the story to prove he's never going to be worthy of, of Abraham's uh, righteous help. Lot's just not a righteous kind of person. And it's not, it wouldn't have mattered whether Abraham got first choice, second choice, third choice, or fourth choice. The reason Abraham did it had nothing to do with Lot. The reason Abraham does it is he's living out the bold hope of the promises of God in the land that God has given him. Abraham didn't get his land because he chose it. Abraham received his land because God chose him. And that's what he's going to live out in bold hope. See, from the beginning of the Bible till the end of the Bible, the purpose of wealth is shalom. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the purpose of wealth is peace and reconciliation. Jesus talks about this too. Go home and read the story of the dishonest steward who makes friends with his money. Because what is best for you is best for all of us is the posture of shalom. Now, here's the reality. You live like that. You decide that peace and shalom are the end game and you're going to lose. I mean, you will, there will be material loss. There's just no way around it. Uh, there, there are going to be real, tangible losses. And Abraham, this happened for Abraham. This was uh, the second bold move that Abraham made is he took the second choice, which he shouldn't have done, according to, you know, the way that this works, the way all this works in the age. But he took second choice. And so I just wonder for you, how do you feel about second? How do you feel about second best? Uh, how do you feel about second class? How do you feel about second place? 
How do you feel about the person who is just an idiot and they do not realize they're supposed to merge behind you on I-5 when the lanes go from four to three instead of force their way in front of you? We don't like second. We're not people like second. I just got married, um, I don't know, like 18 months ago or something like that. And I'd never been married before, right? 47 years old, never married before. And so I get married and this person is just always in my space. Um, <laughs> just everywhere. And, um, and, and I wasn't handling this greatly. And so one time I'm praying about it and here's what the Holy Spirit suggested. Why don't you take second? Always choose second best in this. If you're dishing something up and this plate looks better to you, give it to him. You know, take second choice in the closet. Uh, take second. And this seemed good. And so I was doing this. And, and guess how long it lasted? In bets? Anybody want to guess how long this lasted? I'd love to tell you months. It didn't even last weeks. Um, uh, it just, I wasn't, it, I wasn't very, you know what did it to me? My mom's apple pie. Uh, he was at work and there were two pieces of mom's pie left and one was bigger and I just ate it. And, um, <laughs> and here's the thing, it's my mom's pie, right? And so shouldn't that be for me? Where actually the truth is, if, if you want to know the truth, my mom would have given it to David. That's the truth. But, uh, these are, these are the things we tell ourselves. It was my mom's pie. I'm the one God chose. I'm the patriarch. I'm the elder. I'm the wealthier one. I get first choice. I deserve first choice. But that's not what Abraham does. I would, I would challenge you to do this, you know, where you're living or where you're working, other places, to this, this discipline of taking second choice. For me, what it's proven is, is how scared I am. How scared I am about what I'm going to lose if I don't take the first choice. Because some of the things you lose out on when you take second choice, the truth is, in this lifetime, you're not going to get them back. And so this world that we live in that with the follows the prospect of wealth says you've got to get there first. You have to get first choice. You've got to get your foot in the door first or you'll lose it and you can't get it back. That's the way this works. It's the way it's always worked. But this God that we follow of unlimited promise says, honey, there is nothing you lose I can't restore. I rose a kid from the dead. I will restore everything. This is faith. What I've been learning trying to take second choice is how paltry my faith is and how scared I can be. So these two actions that Abraham takes to seek peace, to make the bold hope choice, the second choice, this is how Abraham pitches his tent in this, in, in, in the, right in the middle of God's impossible promises. That's where we're called to live. But, but it is impossible. So do you remember the two commands that God gave Abraham? It was a little earlier in the sermon. Do you remember him? What was the second one? Rise up and walk. Exactly. So this is how we rise up and walk. We seek peace and we take second. But what was the first command? Do you remember? Look. Lift up your eyes and look. I guarantee you, you try and do this peace thing and this taking second thing without looking into the vision of God's promises without worship, without immersing yourself in scripture, without prayer, and you're not going to last 48 hours. Uh, it's, it, because it doesn't work. But when we immerse ourselves in scripture, when we immerse ourselves in the promises of God, to the extent, to the same extent that we are immersed in, in the land of limited resources and the prospect of wealth, when we immerse ourselves in the promises of God and in prayer and in worship, then God gives us the grace 
to take these bold hope choices. So maybe another thing you do this week is get up and walk. Walk and pray around your office. Walk and pray around your neighborhood. Walk and pray around where that place of of territorial strife is. Get up and walk. Pray. I'll just close with this. It seems to me that um, as Christians in the wealthiest nation in the world, we are called by God, revealed to us in the scriptures, the God who revealed himself to Abraham, the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ, to walk the boundaries of a land that is marked out by peace and shalom. To walk and to live with this, this open-handed generosity that trusts in the certainty of God's provision. And, and to live this really open-handed, bold hope in tangible actions that say to the rulers of this age who pride themselves in their wealth and who mock God in their treatment of the poor, that that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Because we're called to set our vision over here in the land of unlimited promises of God and boldly walk the boundaries of a promise that only God could dare to imagine and only God could possibly fulfill. Because that's how hope works. That's exactly how hope works. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.